We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Notre Dame fans, welcome back to another edition of Irish Breakdown Podcast. It is Friday, November 20th. My name is Brian Driscoll. I am the publisher at irishbreakdown.com. And today, since there is no Notre Dame game and we do not have a game to preview, I'm going to do a no, uh, Irish Breakdown mailbag podca- po- podcast. And we got a lot of your questions. Uh, we got questions kind of team-related, offense-specifically related, defense-specifically related, and recruiting. And so that is the order in which we're going to go. So it's been an incredibly busy week around Notre Dame. Obviously, Notre Dame picked up four commitments on the recruiting trail this week, so we've been very busy. But uh, we're not going to really dive into that because you can get caught up on all of that at irishbreakdown.com. What I want to do is dive right into the questions. So we're going to get rolling, and we're going to start off with some team-related questions. And Dickie McGeezics, I think is how you say his McGeezics, uh, says, B- Brian Kelly recently said this 2020 team is his best yet. Do you agree? Um, Brian Kelly has to say that. Uh, you always say that the team you have is your best yet unless you're comparing it to a championship team uh, because then you need to hold it up to that standard. I think Brian Kelly has to say that because he has, you know, you're, you're trying, you're talking about trying to instill confidence in your football team. You say, well, no, nah, the, the 2012 team was better, or the 2018 team was better, whatever, because those teams lost in 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 the postseason. So you don't say that. So I, th- I think he had to say that. But I, I think this team has a chance to be his best team. It's hard for me to say it's his best team yet because it's an incomplete story. You know, so I mean, you're comparing this team at eight and zero compared to where other teams were at eight and zero, and you say, well, you know, you obviously have the big win over over Clemson, 
which was a big win. But in 2012, Notre Dame had a, you know, by the time they were 8-0, they had just beaten a top 10 at the time, top 10 Oklahoma team on the road. Uh, they had beaten a Stanford team that finished the year in the top 10 at home. They had beaten a Michigan team that finished that year uh, ranked uh, as well. So, I mean, so you, you've you had some other Notre Dame teams that have started 8-0. In 2018, Notre Dame started 8-0. Uh, and, and, you know, it was kind of similar to this year. You didn't have a lot of great wins, but you had beaten a, a Michigan team that went into the final season of the, of the, of the year ranked in the top 10. So, uh, and, and I did an article at irishbreakdown.com kind of comparing this team to past teams which also included like the 2015 team which started seven and one the 2014 team that started seven and one the 2000 and um 2006 or excuse me the 2017 team that also finished started eight and one and really compared the numbers and i think what makes this team different so far is this team has been a little bit more balanced offensively and defensively than some of those other teams like the 2015 team for example to me was by far the most talented notre dame team that Brian Kelly's had it just it wasn't coached well on defense there was some strength and conditioning issues and and that team just didn't play good enough football on defense and yet a lot of injuries they had to overcome early that they they overcame enough to win but you know it, it I think it took them a little bit of time to get rolling uh, with some of those guys but I think I think the 2018 team is in this conversation because that team had a really good defense like this team I think the 2012 team is in this conversation again based on where they were after eight games and and that's the hard part about comparing these things because if you go back to where this team was after eight games in 2012 you can't you can't look at the Alabama game because we don't know what this team is going to do in the postseason we don't know what this team is going to do next week against North Carolina so you can only compare where they are at this time and I think this team is close I think the balance is what probably would give it the edge in a lot of people's minds. But, you know, I, I still need to see this offense be better consistently. And we're going to find that in these last few games. Because the, the one thing that stood out to me when I when I did that article was the numbers are very similar. You know, there have been years that they've been better on offense, years that they've been better on defense. There hasn't been a year where Notre Dame has been necessarily – this good on both sides of the ball but the one thing you have to consider is the quality of the competition is a whole lot different uh, and and yes Clemson is very good but overall this has not been a, a very challenging schedule and the fact is is Notre Dame basically had six warm-up games to get ready for Clemson and and here, here's the the data for that so in 2018 notice Notre Dame's eight opponents up through their first eight games were combined 32 and 32 2017, it was 37 and 27. Notre Dame had wins over, I believe, four ranked teams by this time of the year. Right now, this team has one. 2015, 37 and 27. 2014, 35 and 29. You remember their only loss was a, a close road loss at uh, at Florida State. And the 2012 team had played a schedule of teams that had gone 37 and 27 and had already beat a ranked Michigan team. Uh, a ranked Stanford team and a ranked Oklahoma team on the road. So this year's opponents are 25 and 39. There's only two opponents, and it's the two most recent opponents uh, have a winning record. Now, the, the the encouraging thing about that, the kind of the counter to that, uh, the whole bad competition argument is, I think a case could be made that Notre Dame's two most impressive games this – or actually, I'd say three most impressive games this season were against the three best teams they played, Clemson, Boston College, and Pitt. Uh, where Notre Dame has struggled at times is against two and six uh, Duke. They struggled against – Two and six Louisville. Uh, I think they were very sloppy in a two uh, against a two and five Georgia Tech team, but against better opponents, they played much better. So I think that's a, an encouraging sign. So you have to ask yourself: Does this team kind of play to that level, which would speak positively about its chances to beat some of the teams on the schedule, or is this team starting to peak right about now? And, and that's really the question because. 
you know, if I were to if I were to answer the question of who the best team was through eight games, I'd probably have to go with the 2017 team, just because that team had that early loss to Georgia, which ended up being the national runner-up. I would argue that that Georgia team is better than this year's Clemson team, uh, especially defensively. But they that team in 2017 just annihilated people uh, after that Georgia loss. I mean, they just obliter. I mean, they beat a top 12 USC team, 49 to 14. Uh, they beat a top 15 Michigan State team, 38 to uh, was it 38 to seven, 38 to 10 on the road. Uh, they beat a nine-win NC State team, 35 to 14. I mean, they, they they ran for over 500 yards against a BC team that played for a bowl game that year. Uh, so you know that was a, a great team, but that team collapsed down the stretch. You know, 2014 was a very good football team through eight games, but they collapsed down the stretch. So is that team? Is this team going to be that? Or is this team going to do what they did in 2012 and in, and in uh, 20, um, uh, 2018, which is keep winning and keep playing well? And and I think this team, like I said, is starting to peak. Whereas some of those other teams I talked about, I think you could argue that their peaks happened at different times in the year, but oftentimes earlier in the year. So we're, we're, we still have a lot to learn about this team, but it's definitely in the conversation with 2017 and 2012 for the best teams through eight games. And and again, you really have to try your best to look at it in the same stage because you can't look at compare Notre Dame to what it did in game 13 uh, to this team who hasn't played game 13 yet. So it just is a different different circumstances and a different situation. Uh, next question from Cham Gel is coming off the win against Clemson. Has the game has that game done anything to change your opinion on if this Notre Dame team can, with Ian Book a quarterback and Brian Kelly's the head coach, could compete and win a game against Bama or Ohio State in the playoffs? It really hasn't. Uh, here's what I mean by that: is is number one. Regular season games are important. They matter, and and that Clemson win was huge. And and I'm not going to at all, and and I've said it in multiple podcasts, I'm not taking anything away from that win. That was a huge win. Uh, Big win, and and Trevor Lawrence, a quarterback or not, none of that stuff matters. That was a really good Clemson team. That was a top-five team, uh, Clemson team, without Trevor Lawrence. Even maybe with Trevor Lawrence, maybe they're number one. Without him, they're still top five. So I'm, I'm not taking anything away from that team and that win. Having said that, Getting that big win in the regular season doesn't mean that you can all of a sudden win national championship. And that's really what that question means because, look, Syracuse beat Clemson in 2017. That was a 4-8 Syracuse team. Pitt in 2016 beat a Clemson team that went on to win the national championship that year. And, and that was, I believe, an 8-5 Pitt team. Uh, Purdue two year, a couple years ago beat an Ohio State team that went 13-1. and So just getting that big win, while a great stepping stone for Notre Dame, the standard is still competing for and winning a national championship. So the win over Clemson was huge because it gives you a chance now to, to, to build the resume needed to play for a championship. So that part of it is very important. Um, but they still have to show that they can do that consistently. They now have one huge win in Brian Kelly's uh, you know recent seasons. And if you want to go back to Oklahoma and Stanford in 2012 and Michigan State in 2013, you know the, the number of huge wins are still on one hand. Now this year we're going to ask this team to, to do it two, three, four times. Uh, you know that's a different com- conversation. So uh, let's see how they play against Clemson again. 
I don't think the standard is that they have to beat Clemson. I think that would be an unfair standard. If they lose to Clemson in a competitive game, I'm not going to be like, well, see, uh, that that just shows the game in, in November didn't matter as much because when they had him. No, I don't care if Trevor Lawrence played in, in November and, and didn't in the title game. Look, if they'd have beat Clemson with Trevor Lawrence, would I automatically assume they're going to beat Clemson without him in the ACC title game? No, because beating Clemson twice in one – beating Clemson once in a season is incredibly hard which is why Clemson hasn't lost more than one game in the regular season since, what, 2014, right? Beating them once is incredibly difficult. Beating them twice is something that I don't think you should hold any team to. Uh, you know, So that's just incredibly hard to do to beat a team in a rematch. They need to be competitive, and as long as they're competitive, then I think that shows that Notre Dame is on that level. But now the next challenge is can you go to the postseason and do that? And as we've seen under Brian Kelly – uh, Notre Dame doesn't play as well in the postseason as they do a lot of times in the regular season for whatever reason. Last year we saw that change a little bit, uh, but it was against an inferior opponent. So there's still a lot to prove with this team. I think that that I certainly feel uh, after the Clemson game that my confidence level is is greater, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's changed my opinion because it's still a, we got to see it kind of thing. Uh, and one win is great, but it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've arrived. I, I think we should all be able to agree on that. They they still have more to prove this season. Corey Norman says, UNC has been bleeding points. Uh, what are the areas that Notre Dame offense can exploit? I, I think Notre Dame's thing is just keep doing what you're doing, but play cleaner. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll have that to say in, an, in another question. But look, North Carolina is is not a great rushing defense. I think when you really break it down, uh, if you look at most of their competitive games, they gave up 260 yards uh, to Virginia Tech, 241 during their loss to Florida State. They gave up 210 during their loss to Virginia. Um, and, and I think that that's a common thread. I mean, that's two teams that beat them and that neither are great teams, and those teams were able to run the football on them. So I think Notre Dame's going to have to be able to run the football on, on uh, North Carolina for a couple of reasons. Number one is I think you know, I think X's and O's and matchup-wise and all those other areas, I think those are areas where North Carolina can be exploited, is on the ground, physically beat them up. They don't get physically beat up very often because the ACC is just not a league that has a lot of beat-you-up type of offenses. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is complementing your defense. You're playing a North Carolina offense that can score at will and can score fast. If you hold this North Carolina team to 27 points or 30 points, you've done a very, very good job. Uh, you know, this is a football team that in their last four games has scored an average of 51 points a game. Um, you know, they've they've given up in games. They've given up on defense 45 44 and 53 points in games on defense and they've won two of those games so defensively you're you're not going to win this game you know 13 to 10 you're going to need stops and I think one of the ways that the offense can complement the defense and give the defense an opportunity to make in a game adjustments and kick, kick, uh, keep its legs underneath it is to not get into a track meet and the one way to not get into a track meet is to run it down North Carolina's throat put together seven eight nine play drives where you mix it up and if you get a chance to hit some big plays you hit some big plays and I think that's going to be the other part of it is is to hit some big shots so that way North Carolina can't just tee off on your run game hit some of those you know back shoulder throws post routes deep drags things along those lines off play action and then North Carolina is going to be reeling. And I think the final part for the offense for me is, and this isn't necessarily a, a thing to exploit, but it's a key, is you have to answer scores. When North Carolina scores, you have to score, you know, even if it's just a field goal early. I mean, 
You do you want to fall behind 14 to 6? No, but it's better than falling behind 14 to nothing. And and 14 to 6 meaning, you know, North Carolina scores two touchdowns and you get two field goals as an offense. So, uh, it's not an ideal situation, but it certainly is one of those things early in the game that you have to answer. And if you can answer their touchdowns for touchdowns or their field goals for touchdowns, that's obviously going to allow you to pull the game away late, but I think that's the biggest the, the final piece to that. This last question from uh, from Dickey is uh, it's kind of a defensive question, but I, I kind of going to treat it in the, the team one because it's more big picture. He's got two questions about linebacker. Uh, actually, one question about linebacker, and then there's another really good one uh, that sort of related that I'll answer here too, kind of during the team one. And that is: Is Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa really a first round talent? Um, I believe athletically he certainly is. Production wise, he certainly is. I, I don't. I don't cover the NFL. I don't watch enough of the NFL to really say definitively, yes, he's a first-round pick. I, I've said this in the past. I, I'm i not a draft expert, so will he go in the first round? I don't know. Do I think he has the combination of, of work ethic, athleticism, production, and character to be a first-round pick? Absolutely. But so much of that is about team need, team fit. You know how our team's going to view how Isaiah Simmons did this year as a rookie to Jeremiah Wusu, who I think is in set that similar sort of – hybrid role where he's not quite in Jeremiah's case he's not quite big enough to be a linebacker um, but he's obviously athletic and explosive and powerful how do they how do they factor that in so we just don't know how NFL scouts are going to view him at six one and a half, 215 pounds compared to an Isaiah Simmons who was you know 6'3 6'4 230 plus pounds and then how does he stack up against other undersized linebackers so uh, the fit part of it is is the big question for me that would would make me hesitate to say he's a first rounder because that that I, I just don't know enough about the NFL to know how they're going to view that. But again, athletically, first round talent, uh, production wise, first round talent, uh, character wise, first round talent, uh, work ethic wise, I think first round talent. So there's a lot of things scouts are going to like. We just have to see kind of what their fit is. And then the other question kind of along these lines, and this was a really good one from Indy Football Fan. He said, better impact player on defense, Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa or Drew Tranquil? And I think this is a great question because you worded it kind of, you put the caveat in there. And and the caveat is you said who's a better impact player. And the better impact player is Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa. And it's not just from production because, you know, look, Drew Tranquil was an incredibly productive player at Notre Dame. And he was productive when it came to big plays. And I think of the interception against Georgia. Um, against Georgia, you know, there's plenty of other big plays that he made during his Notre Dame career. You know, in 2018, Drew Tranquil had nine tackles for loss. In 2017, Drew Tranquil had ten and a half tackles for loss. So he made plenty of plays in his career. But Jeremiah Wusu, to me, is, a, is more of an impact player. He's making game-changing plays on the regular. And the other part of it is, as good as Drew was, Drew wasn't necessarily a guy you had to game plan against. I don't, I don't, I never noticed teams saying, "Oh, we got to figure out how we don't let Drew Tranquil take this game over." Jeremiah Wusu is that kind of player. You have to. You, teams just constantly avoid try to avoid him as much as possible with their game plans, and the teams that don't do that pay for it. And so I think from an impact, who's the better impact player? That one's easy. It's Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa. Now. Who, if I had to say, who would I probably grade out higher week to week from a a executing your job snap after snap after snap that consistency, that efficiency of play? That's Drew Tranquil. I think Drew Tranquil was the better down after down player, uh, and he was a guy that could play outside, could play inside. 
So I think in that regards, there's still a level for Jeremiah Wusu to get to from a consistency standpoint, and he's getting better. Uh, and both of them had some of their their some tackling woes, but but in that regards, I'd give the edge to Tranquil. But if you're if you're going to talk about just impact, just pure impact, guy that can change a game, guy that can have an impact even when he's not actually the one making an impact, like meaning a tackle for loss, a sack, or whatever, I think you have to give that one to to Jeremiah Wusu Kormoa. So let's talk some offense. Remember the six, 37 to nothing. Great name, by the way. Obviously referring to the 2014 Michigan game. I know you've thrown quite a bit of shade towards uh, toward Ian Book's performance in big games and Jeff Quinn, who is the offensive line coach, and rightly so. How satisfying is it to see them turn into completely turn it completely around? And do you think both situations are sustainable for the rest of the year? Um, I like how you phrase that question because I, I thought it was going to go a different direction when I first started reading it because I have absolutely been very critical of Ian Book in the past, including games leading up to Clemson, uh, and, and certainly have been very critical of Jeff Quinn for two years, and I still have some criticisms of Jeff Quinn. That's my job. But as I said many times this summer, I hope Jeff Quinn proves me wrong because the thing I've always said about Jeff Quinn is I did not think he did a good job as an offensive line coach his first two years. I think he underachieved as a recruiter, and I still think there's things he needs to prove as a recruiter. Having said that, the one thing I've always said is Jeff Quinn's a really good guy. I've always enjoyed being around Jeff Quinn. I don't think he probably cares for me very much, and I understand that completely, but he's always been a first-class guy, and and I, and I want him to prove me wrong, and so far he has, and I think – when you ask the question, how satisfying has it been? I, I, look, hey, hey, this is something I hope people understand about me. And people that know me and people that have followed me for a long time know this. If I'm critical of someone, there's only been one person involved in the Notre Dame program that I had negative feelings for. That I, in, I wouldn't say I enjoyed when they didn't succeed. Uh, and, and I think people can figure that out because I didn't think that person was a good person. I have no personal issue with Ian Book. I have no personal issue with Jeff Quinn. As a matter of fact, I, I've always praised Jeff Quinn for his character. So to see them be successful in in the face of criticism for me and then others, but of, of course me being very loud with it, is very f- enjoyable to see. Because I've always said, I, if, if I'm critical of you, if I say Brian Kelly can never win a national championship, and he proves me wrong and wins one, I'm going to enjoy that just as much as everybody else. Because ultimately, number one, it's good for my business when Notre Dame is successful. And as I've been very clear since I started covering Notre Dame, I grew up a Notre Dame fan. So, uh, of course, I would enjoy that. And I would much rather be in a situation where, you know, we're covering a team that's winning championships and winning top five games all the time and quarterbacks being picked in the first round. That hasn't been the case. And and until that becomes the situation, then my job is to, to criticize when it's needed and praise when it's needed. In the last two weeks especially, Ian Book deserves a great deal of praise. Uh, and Jeff Quinn, I think, has done a really good job all year. As far as the sustainable for the rest of the year, yeah, it's definitely sustainable. Now, I'm not predicting that it will be sustained because I'm I'm not a prognosticator and I'm not a you know I'm not a someone who can look into the future. It's capable of, it. and the reason I say it's capable of it because what have I always said about Ian Book? It's never been about talent. I've had this argument with people in the past where they say, well, no, Ian Book doesn't have the arm to do this, 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 and this. Look, if you're talking about NFL, sure, there's limitations for Ian Book. If we're talking college football, Ian Book doesn't have a ton of limitations. Now, is he a guy that's going to make some of the throws that we see Trevor Lawrence and 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 Phil Dracovic physically make because of the big, big, strong arms? No, but but that's not what – you don't need to make those plays to be a championship quarterback. You need to make the plays that Ian Book has been making the last two games. And if Ian Book continues to play like that, then, yes, he's capable of sustaining this. 
But that's going to be the key because it's never been a physical problem. It's been a mental problem. And if he can continue to play with the same decision-making, the, the decisiveness has been excellent, the anticipation, uh, going through his progressions, hitting the open receiver, not just you know focusing on, on, on you know, your number one or two read. When he takes off running, being more willing to, to keep his eyes downfield, which is what he's done, being aggressive, being confident, all those things, if he continues that, then, then he's going to be phenomenal, and this team's going to be very, very hard to beat. Uh, but he's got to prove that he can sustain it for more than a couple games. Uh, I'm confident he will, and I, and, I, and I was confident he was going to play well against Clemson. I mean, I predicted that they would win that game, and he would have a game-winning drive. I was wrong on that because it was a game-tying drive, but the principle still stands. I'm more confident that the offensive line is going to sustain its level of play because it has been so consistent. I mean, really, Ian Books had two great games. I thought he was pretty good against Pitt. And then there's a lot of games where you're like, uh, I hope we don't see that version of Ian Book again. Because if you play if, – if let's be honest. If Notre Dame plays on offense, especially at quarterback, against North Carolina, Clemson in a rematch in Wake Forest, the way it did against Duke, the way it did against uh, Louisville, and to a degree the way that it did against, uh, against Georgia Tech, they're going to have a couple losses, right? I, I think we can all be honest about that. Uh, but they also would have lost to Boston College if they would have played that way. They would have lost to Clemson the first time if they would have played that way. The last two games, they haven't played that way. So, uh, so yeah, there's been a little bit more up and down from a quarterback and a skill player standpoint. The offensive line, however, has had one game where I was like, yeah, I didn't think they played great that game. And even in that game, that was against Georgia Tech, they still ran for over 200 yards. Uh, for me, we've seen this offensive line play extremely well the entire year. So there's, they've already established a level of consistency, if that makes sense. And even with the loss of Jarrett Patterson, I still expect this offensive line to play very well because the loss of Jarrett Patterson shouldn't make Liam Eikenberg not be great. It shouldn't make Robert Hainsey, you know, not play as well. He's been excellent the last few games. It shouldn't impact Aaron Banks and Tommy Kramer from a physicality standpoint. There's going to have to be some some communication getting worked on, but whoever's going to start at center is going to be a talented player, whether it's Josh Lugg, who was a highly ranked recruit and has started five games, whether it's Zeke Carell, who hasn't played as much but was a top 100 recruit. The, the options, it's not like they're going to, you know, to a walk-on that, you know, has no business playing. Um, and I'm not referring to Colin Grunhard because if Colin Grunhard wasn't banged up this year, I'd be talking about him potentially being in that conversation as well. Uh, so it, it's not, it's more of like a, a, a traditional walk on who's a guy that's just never, not really at that level. And that's not who they're going to. So yeah, I think that should sustain. I don't think there's any reason not to sustain it. And, and the injury to Jarrett Patterson, while unfortunate, is not something that should keep this offense from being an elite group. Uh, along the offensive line. Similar question uh, from Joe Artizoni. A lot of concerns heading into the season are becoming strengths, i.e. Book seeing the field and making good decisions. Jeff Quinn's linemen are dominating in the run game. Tommy Reese progressing as OC, etc. Is there any specific area you need to, you need to see improvement uh, for a title run? Um, yes, there are. There are some. So number one, sort of along the lines we just talked about, sustainability is important one, Joe. And, and being able to continue what you've done the last two games while then also clear, cleaning up some things. Notre Dame has turned the ball over four times the last two games. The fact is is, is you, turn the, you turn the ball over three times against North Carolina and you're going to get beat. You turn the ball over three times against Wake Forest, you may still win, but it's going to be tough. You turn the ball over three times against Clemson in the ACC title game against Trevor Lawrence, you're going to get blown out. So that's obviously something that has to get cleaned up. The red zone offense was much better against Boston College. But again, I'm not someone who believes that you do something for a game and all of a sudden you are that team. 
you know, a perfect example is if Florida State would have played every game this year like they played against North Carolina, they'd probably be 6-2 and two right now. But they didn't. They're terrible. That was just an anomaly game. And and they're 2-6. and six. And, and since that win, uh, they lost 48-16 to Louisville, 41-17 to, to Pitt, and 38-22 to, to NC State, right? You get my point? Just because you did something once doesn't mean that you've got to figure it out. There's got to be a level of consistency. So hopefully the BC game is a sign that the red zone offense has, has figured it out and they're going to be better. But they got to prove it, and because it, it's it's going to be a very important when you're playing offenses like North Carolina and offenses like Wake Forest, and especially Clemson in a rematch. You can't afford to have some of the mistakes that Notre Dame has had uh, and win those games. You can beat Clemson without Trevor Lawrence when you fumble the ball into the end zone late in the third quarter. It, it, do you really want to take that chance of doing it when they have Trevor Lawrence? Um, those are things that I would say have to get cleaned up uh, offensively with this team is is to do those. But then. You know, I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, let's get into some questions because this next question ties into these three questions. I kind of had them in a row because they kind of tie into each other. This is from Brian Swint. He says, to what do you attribute the recent improvements we have seen with Ian Book? Is it uh, most attributable to Tommy Reese's coaching, Ian Book getting out of his own head, combination of both or something else? I think it's a combination of both of those things. I think it's Ian Book playing confidently. I think that, look, if, if Ian Book was playing poorly right now and, and he was playing without confidence, I'd 100% blame Tommy Reese for that because that's his job as a coach to get his quarterback to playing those. So when you when he is playing that way, you don't say, well, that's just the co- the player being naturally gifted. No, it's it's a coach's job is to take those natural tools and get them to thrive at a high level, and Tommy Reese has done that for the last couple games. If he continues that, then then that's important. And I think a big part of it is, however it's happened, I think Tommy Reese has kind of started to finally figure out what buttons to push with Ian Book to get him to start playing at a high level. And I think a big part of it is, I think he's turned Ian Book loose. I think Ian Book is playing much more aggressively. Uh, I think he's playing much more outside the, the framework of the offense, not to the level that we see with like a Phil Dracovic or – you know, Johnny Manziel back in the day, but he but he's allowing him a little bit more freedom, you know, to move around and run more and, and scramble and make those plays. And I think when Ian Book makes plays, especially early in games like that, we tend to see him become an even better passer because he's more aggressive. And I think we've seen that. And so I think that's a credit to, to Tommy Reese first and then also Ian Book to, to stepping up and making those plays. And I, I just think, you know, Ian at some point in time had to figure out that, you know, hey, look, I'm pretty good. But I also can't be afraid to make a mistake. And and he's playing much looser. He's playing much less scared to make a mistake, which has been a big problem for him. And you know, I think the throw that really told me that more than any was the third and 10 throw against Boston College where he hit Avery Davis over the middle of the field, ended up being a 48-yard gain. You know, that was Tommy Reese going to his – or Ian Book going to his second, third progression over the middle of the field. We don't see Ian Book really throw over the middle of the field when it's his number one read much less his number his number two, number three read. And so that's a confident throw. That's a guy that has a lot of confidence in himself. It's a lot of a guy that has a lot of confidence in his teammates and then also in the system. And I think a lot of people get credit for that. And when Ian Book's playing that way, you can just see it kind of bleed into the whole unit. The receivers start, you know, four weeks ago when Ian Book started running around in the pocket, for the most part, the receivers would just turn around and block. Well, now they're moving to working to get open because they know that Ian's going to find them. That's really important. When you can kind of have that confidence in your quarterback, and your quarterback's playing with confidence, it's going to make everybody else more confident. Hey, I go do my job, Ian's going to get me the ball. And the fact that he's spreading the ball around more is another piece to that because it's not just, well, I'm not I'm the number two, I'm number three read on this play, I'm not getting the ball. 
now guys have to be more engaged no matter where they are in the progression because he may come to me and I got to be prepared for that. And I think that's really made this entire group just a whole lot better at this point in the season. Dickie asks, can you talk about Kurt Heinrich's play through the first eight games of the season? And is he one of the most improved players on the defense this season? I'm going to say no. And, and allow me to explain on this one. I think everything we're seeing Kurt Heinrich do this year, and especially last three, four games, he's been very good. Uh, we've seen him do this before. None of this is new, right? We've, we've seen games in the past. I think of the Syracuse game in 2018 when he was just a sophomore. We've seen games where, where Kurt Heinrich would be really disruptive. I think what happened was is, is Kurt Heinrich would, would really, a lot of times he would wear down and he would get tired because he's not a typical 295-pound guy. He's puffed up at 295, meaning when he stops playing football, he's going to lose weight in a hurry, um, it, you know, assuming he still works out and stuff because he's just not a natural 295 to 300-pound guy. And what would happen is when he was playing 30 to 40 snaps a game week after week after week, he, he would wear down. And it was just hard for him to maintain that high level of intensity that, that makes him so good when he's playing so many snaps. And, you know, and I think when you look at, for example, the last few games, you know, his, his volume against, against Clemson and, and BC was higher. But a big reason he was able to be higher with that volume is because he hadn't played a lot of games where he was he was 25 to 40 to 45 snaps and I think that's a big part of of what's allowed him to be so fresh um you know but uh I, I think that's that's really helped him and so when he can play at that high level of intensity snap after snap it makes him so much more effective knowing that he can come out and then and then still go in and make plays so I think that's why so he's not improved I think he's He's consistent, but his consistency isn't coming from anything that he's doing differently, like he was doing something wrong before. I just think it's the fact that Mike Elson's able to use such a deep rotation this year um, has really helped him, um, you know, really helped him to be a more effective, a more effective player consistently because he is able to keep him fresher throughout the game. Uh, and so that's why I say he hasn't improved in that regards because I, I, I think he's always kind of been this guy. Jam Gel asked, the defense is a lead against the run. How concerned are you about the pass defense with the defenses we have left on the schedule and potentially play us? I'm very concerned. Uh, I don't think Notre Dame has this, the talent in the secondary, that it's, especially mainly at corner, that it's had in past seasons. This is not a Julian Love-Troy um, uh, Pride duo. It's just not. They're good players, but they're not great players. And if the pass rush is working, as I mentioned earlier, then, then, then I think they're good enough to make plays. But I just don't think this is a group that you necessarily want – covering people for, you know, for long periods of time when the, when the pass rush is getting home. So that's really my big thing. It's more about the pass rush than it is anything. And that's what I get concerned about when I look at an Ohio State or an Alabama because Alabama's got a really good pass-blocking offensive line. And if Notre Dame is not able to get pressure on the quarterback or if they have to bring six guys consistently to get pressure on the quarterback, then you're going to leave your DBs in a lot of one-on-ones against guys I don't think you want to be leaving your DBs in one-on-ones with. So – uh, the pass rush is going to be a big, big key for this for this group down the stretch, not just against, you know, uh, Alabama and Ohio State, but it's going to be important against North Carolina and Wake Forest and uh, and Clemson as well. Four recruiting questions before we we, we leave here, and the first one is from Griffin Weedler. Uh, what do you think is the max amount of guys Notre Dame takes a cycle? Let's say they end up with twenty five. Uh, who do you think is do you see as the most likely combination of guys remaining on the board? 
uh, to get to that number. Seems like this class has really turned into a numbers game with some big-time players still on the board and spots filling up fast. Now, Griffin asked this question before uh, some of the guys have committed this week. So uh, this is back when I believe Notre Dame was around 20 still. So right now they're 23. I do think they're going to lose at least one player in this class. Uh, not going to get too much into that. It's not going to be something that's going to necessarily um, upset a lot. Not I'm, There's really no good way of saying that. It's not a big name. It's not one of their top guys. I'll just say it that. Uh, I think right now, I think also Kahanu Kia, my understanding is, and this could change, but my understanding was he still plans on taking a mission, so that wouldn't count towards the, the 25. And they can go past 25. The, the 25 limit is is basically it's an average. You can only average 25 a year. Notre Dame had a smaller class last year. They were in the teens. There's several early enrollees that Notre Dame can take from 2021 and count towards the 2020 class to get them up to 25 because they were below 25. So that's how you see teams go over 25 is they'll apply them to different years. Uh, and Notre Dame certainly is in a position to do that. The question is more of where are they with the 85, more so than the 25. I think they could get up to 26, and that would include uh, Kia being a Kahanu Kia being a, a still going on his mission. But 25 is about the right number if you include if you don't include him. Um, so I think there's three, there's three positions, three guys that I really look at. And the first one is Kelvin Gilliam, the defensive end from Virginia, uh, big time prospect, top hundred player, uh, would be a needle moving commit. And he's committed to Oklahoma right now. Uh, there's a connection there. Obviously Shane Beamer, uh, longtime Virginia guy knows his high Kelvin Gilliam's high school coach very well. Uh, and I think that's kind of helped develop that relationship with Oklahoma. Oklahoma's not going to back down from uh, Kelvin Gilliam, even though Notre Dame's got some momentum. And Oklahoma's won a lot of these battles against Notre Dame. Even though their defense continues to stink, they have beaten Notre Dame for a lot of defensive players, which is kind of maddening and frustrating. But, of course, Notre Dame is is you know doing very well on the, on the field this year, and their defensive line is a big part of that. So hopefully that can, can help play a bigger role in it. And, Kel, and Kelvin Gilliam is a – Guy that when he interviewed uh, Nathan Atkins on our, you know, who interviewed him for a Irish breakdown, he, he, you know, academics are a big part of what matters to him and his family. So I think I think he would be a guy that right now I would predict Notre Dame gets, even though you know I'm not I'm not betting my uh, my house on it. I think they'll get another DB. Now who that is going to be is remains to be seen. I know Notre Dame's still recruiting Sierra Wright, who is a a corner from Los Angeles. I'm I'm I'd be a little surprised right now if he if he chose. Notre Dame, I think he's probably going to stay on the West Coast, but Notre Dame is still fighting for him, and he's still talking to Notre Dame. And as long as a kid is still engaged with you, you got a shot. You're in the game, and that would be a big one too. He's a top 100 uh, recruit. If they don't get him, they can all easily go for JoJo Johnson, who is uh, from Maryville, Indiana. I like JoJo Johnson a lot. I saw him first time I saw him was two years ago as at a Notre Dame camp. He was playing receiver. Really liked that kid. If they got either one of those two guys, I'd consider that a big win. And then the last one was Donovan Edwards, top 100 running back for Michigan. Now, I had an update on him and some other players at IrishBreakdown.com on Thursday, and I talked about how a couple sources, and these are sources kind of connected through Notre Dame, felt really good about where they stood with Donovan Edwards, which surprised me a little bit. Well, I talked to another source today, and today's Friday, uh, that's not affiliated with Notre Dame. And I was talking to him about Donovan Edwards, and and he told me the same thing, that based on what he knows, and he's not getting this from Notre Dame people because he doesn't talk to any Notre Dame people, from what he's hearing from his sources and, 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 and people close to Donovan Edwards is the same that I'm hearing, that Notre Dame's got a really good chance with Donovan Edwards. If they're somehow able to pull that off and get those three guys, that to me would give Notre Dame its best to overall, overall class since 2013 and, and possibly their best overall class since 2011. 
Uh, this, this, that could be a very, very good class. Maybe you don't have the elite, elite top of level prospects like they had last year with Chris Tyree and Michael Mayer and Jordan Johnson, but the depth of top, top prospects will be very good. You know, and you're start talking to get to the bottom of this class and you're talking about some of the guys that would be considered the lower ranked players in this class would, would blow away the bottom five from last year's class. So even though last year's class maybe is a scotch better you know, one through five, this class would be so much better at six through, you know, 20. And I think that's a, that to me is more important. And, that, and that's what Charlie Weiss struggled with, right? I mean, the one thing Charlie Weiss always did, he'd get five to eight, like just dudes. But then when you'd go on like 12 through 18, they weren't as good of players. And that's what this staff is doing. A bit. This, this staff has done a great job with like, you know, eight to 20. They haven't been as good at one through seven. This class is doing a little bit of both. And so if they can finish with those three guys, that would move the needle for me as opposed to being better than what we've seen in recent years. If they only get one of those guys or none of those guys, then this is kind of the same class they've always done, which is really good, but not an elite recruiting class. Uh, Dickie McGeekix, Dickie is asked the final question for him. What, why does the Indy struggle to secure top 25, 50, 100 talent at the skill positions, quarterback, running back, receiver, etc., especially when you consider how good their offensive line and tight ends are? I get asked this question a lot, and I, and I completely reject the premise of it. I don't think Notre Dame does have a problem with those positions. Number one, quarterback. This is a staff that in the last decade has recruited Ever Golson, Gunnar Keel, five-star player, Brandon uh, Malik Zaire, Deshaun Kaiser, Brandon Wimbush, Phil Dracovic, and Tyler Buckner. There are not many teams that can say that they've recruited from a recruiting ranking standpoint better than that at quarterback. The problem Notre Dame has had at quarterback is not recruiting, it's development. Okay. They're recruiting plenty, plenty of talent at quarterback. They haven't been able to develop that talent yet. Hopefully that changes with Tyler Buckner. And, and Drew Pine, again, a guy that I didn't mention, was a top 100, 200 player. Running back. The only person that's had a problem recruiting running back at Notre Dame was Audrey Denson. Tony Alford didn't have a problem with it. Tony Alford recruited very, very good running backs during his tenure at Notre Dame. Uh, he, he got commitments from Greg Bryant and Torian Folson in the same class. He got a commitment from Josh Adams and Dexter Williams in the same class. I mean, that's a guy that recruited running back very well during his tenure. You know, recruited Sear Wood and Theo Riddick uh, in the same class. So, so uh, uh, Lance Taylor in his first two classes is Chris Tyree and Logan Diggs, and he's got Notre Dame with a chance to get Donovan Edwards. He's having no problem recruiting running back. The only person that had a problem recruiting running back was Audrey Denson. No need to get into that, but that's a fact. So uh, receiver is the last one. And, and I don't know how anyone can look at Notre Dame and say that there's an issue recruiting receivers. I, I Again, the problem has been more development than receivers. In 2017, you had plenty of talent to beat Georgia at receiver. You had Equinemius St. Brown, you had Miles Boykin, you had Chase Claypool. The problem was they didn't play the two, the last two guys because they weren't you know experienced enough or didn't have the traits or didn't know the offense the way they needed to. So instead, Notre Dame trotted out Cam Smith, uh, Freddie Canteen, and Mike Chris Fink, who played over a hundred combined snaps, and they had Miles Boykin, Chase Claypool, and T- Cole Komet combined for twelve snaps. Okay, that's a coaching problem, not a recruiting and develop a recruiting talent problem. Um, you know, so you're talking about. This is a staff that Javon McKinley was a top 100 recruit. Jordan Johnson's a five-star recruit, top 50 player at worst, who's sitting on the bench getting no playing time. That's Again, that's not a talent problem. That's a coaching and development problem, okay? This is a staff that had Michael Floyd, uh, TJ Jones, Will Fuller, Corey Robinson, Kevin Stefferson, Equinemy St. Brown, Miles Boykin, 
Um, Chase Claypool, Javon McKinley. They recruited Jalen Guyton, who got kicked out of school. That's not the staff's fault, but he he starts a wide receiver for the Los Angeles Chargers right now. Okay, uh, Notre Dame has no problem recruiting talent at receiver. They got they got one of the best receiving classes in the country. Definitely top five receiving classes in the country coming in next year. The problem has been being able to get young receivers ready to play as well as other top programs. Now, by the time they become juniors and seniors, no problem, right? But this staff, especially the, the current receivers coach, who, who I like in a lot of ways, but he's just not good at getting young players ready to go. He just isn't. And I don't think Brian Kelly wants that. And that part of the problem is is, is not necessarily Dell as much as it's, it's the head coach and what he wants the offense to look like with – you know, receivers having to know one, possibly three, four different route possibilities but when they line up. A young guy is going to have a harder time with that. Uh, so, again, I don't think recruiting has been the issue. I think it's been more about development uh, and properly u- utilizing guys at positions. Mike Allen asks, recruiting question, let's say Indy takes five more recruits. Who do you want? Um, now, again, this question was asked before the recent run. So, uh, Caleb Johnson would have been part of that. Philip Riley would have been part of that. So, we'll go with the next three. Um, and I would, he says three guys we are actively recruiting. Uh, I'll give those one guy who was committed to another school, but would, could potentially flip. And one we may not be involved in right now, but should be, uh, there's nobody in that category. I think that ship has pretty much sailed as far as I know. Uh, the one guy who was committed to another school, but could potentially flip Caleb Johnson would have been in that. He has now flipped from, uh, Auburn. Notre Dame did flip him from Auburn and Gilliam would be the other one who I talked about earlier, who's committed to Oklahoma. If, If they could get that flip, that would be huge. And, you know, I kind of talked about the, you know, the five more recruits, you know, Ken Riley and Johnson would be part of that too. And then the next three would be the guys that I mentioned earlier, Kevin Gilliam, Donovan Edwards, and then one of the two DBs. And honestly, if they could fit the both, if they could fit JoJo and Sierra Wright, I would take them both. I, I really would. But I, again, that would be a staff decision. They know more about where their scholarships are next year than I do in regards to who is or isn't coming back next year. Final question, Jeff Bowdrin asks, so obviously this season's success has played a part in the latest recruiting gains. Are you still of the belief that this season's success will help next year's season's recruiting class even more? Yeah, and it's a numbers game, right? So, like, if if Notre Dame wasn't 8-0 and ranked number two in the country, do I think they'd be able to get Edwards, Gilliam, and Sierra Wright or JoJo Johnson? No, they would have got some of them, but not all of them. Do I think they would have flipped Caleb Johnson and Phillip Riley? Maybe, but I'm not as 100% certain on that. It, so it's certainly helping this year, but like it didn't help with the vast majority of the class because that class was put together before this. I think next year this eight no start and let's let's just say hypothetically Notre Dame loses to Clemson by a field goal in the in the worst case scenario, right? Um, but still a good season would be losing to Clemson in the ACC title game in a close game, and for whatever reason Notre Dame gets screwed over. Um, doesn't make the college football playoff. They go to the Orange Bowl and beat an SEC team, right? So you finish 12-1, and great year, uh, had two big wins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, best case scenario, Notre Dame goes out and competes for the national championship and either wins it or, you know, let's say they lose by a last-second field goal to somebody, right? Great years. That's going to have an impact on everybody in next year's class. So your entire class basically is going to be impacted by that success. So, yes, from a sheer number standpoint, it's going to have a bigger impact on the 2022 class than it is the 2021 class. So that is going to be it for today's podcast. Uh, we will obviously be back on Monday. Um, we'll have some podcasts next week. We'll kind of do a, a little bit different, kind of preview the final four games of the year early in the week, kind of talk about what 
what areas Notre Dame needs to continue to develop and improve to make a stretch run. And then, of course, as we get into the week, we'll have a preview of the North Carolina-Notre Dame game, which will be a a big, big, huge game and shouldn't – if you like defense, it might not be the game for you. Uh, but if you like points, this is probably going to be a game you're going to thoroughly enjoy. So I hope everyone has a great, great rest of your weekend. Everyone stay safe for the next week. Enjoy your family, being with your friends and family and loved ones uh, on Thanksgiving um, yes. So definitely be, make sure you do that. And we can all obviously do that and stay safe. So enjoy the weekend, enjoy college football, even though there's no Notre Dame. And, uh, I will talk to you guys all very soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.